0: I'm Kimberly Crenshaw and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. For the last year, we've been immersed in debates about critical race theory. Not simply what it is and isn't, but what it is accused of being and doing in the nation's classrooms. Now, judging by the viral clips of upset parents at school board meetings demanding curricular control and by CRT's adversaries wrangling state power in their crusade to banish whatever it is from public education, it is viewed as a singular threat, a phantom that strikes our most vulnerable Americans in our public institutions when no one is looking. Drowned out by the anti-CRT mob of pundits, operatives, and politicians are the stories of the students, the teachers, and the administrators who have borne the brunt of this war on anti-racist education. Indicted for exposing students to anti-racist concepts, texts, and frameworks, these are the real heroes, those who have risked it all in defense of educational integrity and truth-telling. As part of our Under the Black Light series, on the day after the November elections, the African American Policy Forum gathered an incredible lineup of brave educators, students, activists, all to give us their reports from the front lines of the battle. They provided a window into the specific details that have been obscured and distorted amidst all the fury. And while the media spotlight on that day was devoted to the Republican victory in Virginia, a fuller inspection of the results shows that the election was not only a day of gloom and doom. Independents
1: and Democrats have taken over Guilford's Board of Education. Now, this follows a heated campaign that emphasized how race is taught inside the classroom.
2: Voters in the mequon thiensville school district soundly rejected an attempt to recall four school board members. A now
3: failed recall using critical race theory, the pandemic, and academic performance to mobilize voters.
0: And yet, despite these victories and others, the Democratic loss in the high-profile Virginia governor's race provides a window into the retrenchment politics taking shape all across America. We know that this cynical and dishonest campaign against teaching truth in the schools has fostered a growing know-nothing mood in the electorate. Opponents can now vote against the idea of critical race theory in public schools, not even having a clue of what critical race theory is. Listen to this. What's
3: the most important issue
4: in the governor's race here in Virginia? Getting back to the basics of teaching children, not teaching them critical race theory. And uh, and, uh, what is critical race theory? Well, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it because I don't understand it that much, but it's something that I don't... The, what little bit that I know I don't care for And, and what have you heard that, that you don't? Well that you I'm, don't not, like? I'm, I'm not gonna I, I, you know I don't I don't have that much knowledge on it, but okay. it's something that I'm not that I don't care for.
0: Like I said, we are battling a know-nothing movement that is proliferating across the states. And what are the most absurd and frightening demonstrations of this? The book Bannings. Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye, Alice Walker's The Color Purple, Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things, even Ruby Bridges' memoir. Just listen to this ad that ran for the Republican nominee in Virginia.
2: As a parent, it's tough to catch everything. So when my son showed me his reading assignment, my heart sunk. It was some of the most explicit material you can imagine. I met with lawmakers. They couldn't believe what I was showing them. Their faces turned bright red with embarrassment. They passed bills requiring schools to notify parents when explicit content was assigned. It was bipartisan. It gave parents a say, the option to choose an alternative for my children. I was so grateful. But then Governor Terry McAuliffe vetoed it twice. He doesn't think parents should have a say. He said that. He shut us out. Glenn Youngkin, he listens. He understands parents matter. Join me in voting for Glenn Youngkin.
5: I'm Glenn Youngkin, candidate for governor, and I sponsored this ad.
2: The book
0: this parent is referring to? (laughs) Toni Morrison's Pulitzer Prize winning masterpiece about the traumas of slavery. Beloved. All over the nation, we've seen scenes of rapidly degenerating violence, threats, intimidation being used to compel teachers into silence. What we are witnessing is a calculated, coordinated backlash to last year's racial mobilization, the moment of racial reckoning that brought millions of us out into the streets. As history teaches us, it was only a matter of time before the inevitable retrenchment, the backlash. This is nothing but an effort to stop this reckoning in its tracks while deploying colorblindness to mandate an official condition of amnesia about our past. Using our nation's children as hostages, this is nothing but an in run around racial justice by eliminating the very tools, the very knowledge, the very history to conceptualize racial injustice. Non-compliant educators are the prime targets in this war. And the casualties are piling up. In this episode of Intersectionality Matters, we're going to share with you our roundtable conversation, Educators Ungagged, Teaching Truth in the Era of Racial Backlash. It was moderated by Sumi Cho, Director of Strategic Initiatives at the African American Policy Forum. And in it, you'll hear from teachers and administrators who have lost their jobs simply for doing what they signed up to do, provide the best and most inclusive education they can to their students. You'll also hear from a college student and a legal advocate, both of whom are bringing the fight for teaching truth into an Oklahoma courtroom. No one should have to go through what these educators and students have gone through. And we are so grateful to them for fighting on the front lines of this battle and for giving us an on-the-ground view of what's really going on in schools across America. It is my absolute honor to share their stories with you on today's episode of Intersectionality Matters.
5: Good evening. I'm Sumi Cho, Director of Strategic Initiatives at the African American Policy Forum. In alphabetical order, our panelists today are Lily Amici, a junior at the University of Oklahoma who grew up in North Texas. On campus, Lily helped establish BERT, the Black Emergency Response Team. She and the other students at BERT are lead plaintiffs in a recently filed lawsuit challenging HB 1775, Oklahoma's classroom censorship bill. Stacey Davis Gates is currently Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union and Executive Vice President of the Illinois Federation of Teachers. She's raised millions of dollars to elect classroom teachers to all levels of local government and to challenge school privatizers and union busters. Amy Donafrio is a former high school teacher who was terminated from her position at Florida's Riverside High School, following a long record of supporting students seeking a culturally supportive learning environment. Earlier this year, the Southern Poverty Law Center sued the Duval County School Board on Donafrio's behalf, alleging retaliation and infringement of her right to free speech. Matthew Hahn, a 16-year teacher and baseball coach in rural Eastern Tennessee was fired in May of this year following parent complaints about the materials he assigned in his contemporary issues class. Specifically, a spoken word poem entitled White Privilege and a ta Coates essay about Donald Trump and the history of white supremacy. Brittany Hogan is the former director of Educational Equity and Diversity for the Rockwood School District in St. Louis County, Missouri. She left her job this summer after she was subjected to such severe harassment and threats from parents that the school board was forced to assign private security outside her home overnight. Leah Watson is a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Racial Justice Program. She's co-counsel to the ACLU's lawsuit, challenging HB 1775 and the Oklahoma classroom censorship bill. Prior to law school, She was a high school teacher in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. James Whitfield is the first black principal of Colleyville Heritage High School in Texas. Earlier this year, he was suspended by the school district without explanation, less than a month after a school board meeting in which several white parents accused him of promoting critical race theory and called for his immediate termination. Despite widespread support from the community, the board voted against renewing his contract in late September.
6: Dr. Whitfield has been disrespectful,
5: unreasonable, and insubordinate. So let's get started, and I wanna begin with you, Dr. Whitfield. How do you make sense of all of this as the first black principal in the history of your school?
3: Sumi, thank you so much for, for having us all tonight. You know, when when those were the terms used, insubordinate, disrespectful, um, it kind of takes me back in time to a point where, you know, you're told to really stay in your place. Don't speak up. Even if things are happening to you, just just bear with it. Just just hang in there. It made me think of all the times over the course of history that, that it's that same pushback. anytime you speak up for yourself, because essentially When this all came to pass, when the putting on uh, paid administrative leave and that happens, nobody had come to my defense, right? Throughout the whole year, nobody said anything. July 26th happens. This failed school board candidate goes on. He's allowed to say my name, air these baseless grievances, and nobody stops it. They allow people in the gallery to yell, fire him. It's like a scene out of To Kill a Mockingbird. Like I say, it's like going back in time. And I wait for days after that for somebody, anybody to say something, say, hey, I got your back, publicly support me, you know, and and who I am and what I'm about for kids. And nobody did that. And essentially what we're getting at with insubordination and disrespect is anytime that as John Lewis said, you, you go to make good trouble and you speak up for yourself and you defend yourself in the light of injustice, the system could come back at you and say, well, hold up, just wait a minute. We don't like the way you said that we see that when we, whenever we go to protest, they, you know, if we go to protest this way, we don't like that. Don't do it that way. Well, how can we do it? Uh, we just don't want to hear you. So my, my fear is that people, if people in leadership positions, uh, if we don't take ownership and get on the offense instead of trying to play defense uh, and sitting quiet on these issues, if we don't get very specific about who we are, what we're about, what we're there to do and combat these, these baseless claims that I fear we're leaving our educators on an island and and not essentially giving our kids the best opportunities, uh, which is why all of us uh, are in education.
5: Absolutely. It's also stunning in terms of the shift from this broad community excitement initially around having a black principal to in just a few months, this very organized opposition. What sort of racial logic do you think was at work here.
3: Well, I told the superintendent at that last board meeting where they voted towards nominal of my contract. I'm no different a person today than I was when you hired me going on four years ago, you promoted me twice in three years. So what's changed and what had changed over the course of that time, specifically last year was these two contentious school board elections where people ran on that anti CRT platform. They won two seats using that dog whistle, right? And so through over the course of that time, I started to see things heat up with regard to that group. Now that group is not majority parents of mine at my school. They're majority people, if if we're honest, don't even have kids in the school district. But for some reason, for some reason, that group held so much power. And the only thing I can think towards is I am the quintessential boogeyman for them, right? Here we have the first African-American principal at this school. And now there's these anti-CRT movements. Oh, wait a minute. He sent out a letter regarding the murder of George Floyd. Uh, We can't have that. He calling out systemic racism. We can't have that. Oh, he created a diversity advisory council that was a student group to help recognize and uplift diverse voices. We can't have that. But, you know, what what I've seen play out in response to that, though, what is beautiful is you saw pictures of students speaking up and and letting their voice be heard. You've heard from parents in the community, parents that are saying, we know our principal. We know what he's about and who he is. He's just trying to provide a safe, nurturing environment for all kids, regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, you name it. We know that that guy wants the very best an equitable ed- education for all kids. And, you know, they've spoken up, but for some reason, the parents that have showed up in droves, the parents that have emailed and emailed the, the board members, superintendent, anybody in leadership, for some reason, their voices have not been authorized as much as people seemingly in this other camp.
5: Yes, I mean, I think that your story is so interesting because as you noted in terms of your Facebook, Post that was speaking your truth and the meaning of George Floyd's murder for your community and how you needed to lead in that very moment was completely, um, you know, at first lauded. But then, after the political winds shifted, those aspects now become a liability and a defect that have to be purged from the district. Uh, so, a very chilling story. Let me turn now. Matthew Hahn. Matthew, in your experience as an educator, especially in teaching social studies, you indicate how important it was to stimulate class discussion, to make it real for the students, to allow them to have a sense of understanding of who they are, where they come from, the historical implications behind various events. And there didn't seem to be any ostracization or penalty for teaching any other topics that you've taught during your time as a teacher. But there was an uproar once your lessons touched on issues relating to racial equity, social justice. You dared speak the words white privilege. One of the charges that was leveled against you was that you failed to teach a quote, diversity of views. Do you believe there's a contradiction in that charge, especially in relation to your Eastern Tennessee community? And can you take us through what accompanying tactics of degradation were used to try to silence you?
4: Sure. Thank you. Uh, So let me just echo what Dr. Whitfield said. Thank you for having us. Um, You know, I teach in a uh, county that is 95% white in a school district that is 98% white. And so what I have always tried to do is provide my students with varying viewpoints, no matter what issue we are talking about. And uh, this year, it's been difficult. I never thought that I would be in this position, but um, it it all started back in the fall. Uh, I made the statement during the events in Kenosha that white privilege is a fact. And this was to a contemporary issues class. We were discussing that. I also challenged our students. I said, in this unit, we are going to look at solutions to racism in the United States, which I thought was a really good lesson plan. Uh, That statement, white privilege is a fact, made it to our uh, director of curriculum and instruction who brought up the Tennessee Teacher Code of Ethics. You know, statements like this is a fact uh, deny students access to varying points of view. In the times of COVID, my students went back home after that, so I didn't get the opportunity to bring that up again. I think that's a conversation that we need to have in class. But um, in January, uh, after the events at the Capitol, I wasn't real sure how to talk about it. It was the first time in my life that a sitting president had encouraged the overthrow of the United States government. So I thought, sticking with my state standards, I would look at uh, the 2016 election. And I asked my students, this election is historic. You know, what were some reasons that led to the election of Donald Trump? And they they came up with great answers and they were all at home. But I decided to lead with a ta Coates essay that made it to a parent who complained about the language, said that I was denying students access to varying points of view. Two weeks later, on February the 3rd, I was reprimanded. I, I received an official reprimand from the school. If you look at that reprimand, my statements are inaccurate and taken way out of context. The central office did not interview me. They didn't ask, hey, what are you doing here? They they didn't want to know. I appealed it and, and lost to the school board. All six board members voted to uphold my reprimand. And so we continue on with the semester. And then the Derek Chauvin trial happens. And everybody in the world is talking about it. So I'm a contemporary issues class. We have to talk about it. And a student brings up white privilege. And so like a good teacher, I say, well, what is that? And we begin that discussion, which leads me to showing the poem White Privilege by the brilliant Kyla Jene Lacy. Uh, that poem had some language. And I tried to redact that language. I attempted to mute those, those words. Um, but I was unsuccessful. And I. Um, Somebody complained uh, two weeks after showing the poem, I was dismissed for not providing my students with varying points of view. And my response to that is, you know, in a dominant conservative white culture of East Tennessee, the viewpoints of ta Coates and Kyla Janae Lacey are the varying viewpoints. Our history is in East Tennessee, people don't realize is very progressive. Um, we were known as the little union in the civil war. And I actually had an ancestor who was um, hung in Knoxville, Tennessee for uh, being a bridge burner. Uh, he burned Confederate supply lines and railroads. And the first abolitionist newspaper uh, in America is 20 minutes south of me, so it, it's. I think if people were more aware of the history of Northeast Tennessee, you know, they might be a little bit more open to hearing varying viewpoints. You know, the fight for racial equity and and the fight against injustice.
5: Thank you so much for that. There, there's a lot of different angles there that we're going to explore when we come back to the next round. Uh, that are just really crying out for elaboration, but thank you for that, Matthew. Amy, your case reveals you know, how a teacher can be penalized just because she's seeking to empower and change the lives of her students. You've been a very highly effective English teacher for 13 years, nine of them working at what had been named the Robert E. Lee High School in Jacksonville, Florida. You co-founded with your students what becomes known as the EVAC movement to address the significant inequities faced by Jacksonville's Black youth. You've been listening to your students, advocating alongside them, launching initiatives that have taken you all quite far. You went to the White House and met with President Obama. You and your students made the front page of the New York Times you all won first place nationwide in a contest sponsored by Harvard University. With all these accolades, all these accomplishments, you would think that your school and your administration would be so proud and supportive of the work that you were doing. But instead, the administration went the opposite way. Tell us how your school responded.
6: To understand really what happened um, with my students and I, you, you kind of have to understand the context. We're in Jacksonville, Florida, which is one of the last cities in the country to desegregate its education system and literally had to have federal reach to come in and enforce us to do that like 10 years after um, Brown versus Board. Jordan Davis was killed in our city. Trevor Martin was killed 80 miles outside of our city. We have an extremely high rate of deaths from police shootings you know, we have active KKK chapters, it's it's a certain kind of setting, and that passes over to the school. So um, I taught for 13 years, like you said, and for the past nine years, I taught at what well, was until the summer, Robert E. Lee High School, answers his phone, home of the generals, we have a Confederate general as our mascot, and the student population is 70% Black. And that Confederate name feels very reflective of the treatment of Black students, which I witnessed and reported for years, all of that, the school and city context, spurred my students and I to co-found something called the EVAC movement. And basically, we created to address these significant inequities um, faced by Black youth in particular in our city. Um, Many of them had had murdered loved ones. They'd experienced police brutality. Almost all of them had an immediate family member who was incarcerated long term. And they decided to to do something to challenge these systems. And so we started just inviting officials into our class to hear their stories. And it spiraled really quickly um, because as we know, youth voices are incredible. Um, Our kids are brilliant. Pretty soon we were booked every class period with a different official coming in to hear their stories. And less than a year, their bravery and the power of their stories led us all the way to the White House two winning contest sponsored by Harvard, and we did it all with no funding, zero dollars. For me, in education, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever witnessed. It might be the most beautiful thing I've witnessed in my life, um, but instead, rather than celebrate our achievements, Duval County Public Schools shut us down. They canceled our class. They made it very, very difficult, Um, and I think that's because it was hierarchy disrupting. It was challenging these systems that didn't like to be challenged, especially here in the South. Um, especially by Black youth. And this harassment and opposition went on for, gosh, about four years. And it kind of came to a head this last school year with 2020. Obviously, you know, the context there, George Floyd is killed. We're kind of dealing with the racial reckoning in our country and also in our community. Um, there's discussion on changing all these Confederate names, most of which in our community were literally named after the Confederacy after we desegregated. They were literally used to terrorize people. Um, and we're kind of coming to terms with that. The election's coming up. And, and what was happening last school year is more and more kids were coming with really horrifying stories of racism they were experiencing. And so a flag went up above, a Black Lives Matter flag went up above my classroom. And I just wanted to make it clear you know, to students that when they walk into my room, they can let out a breath. And originally, when it went up, a supervisor approached me and said he thought it might violate policy. I asked for the policy. He was unable to provide it. And he dropped it. That was in October of 2020. There was no more issue until suddenly in March 2021, when our school started hosting name change discussions. And those essentially were pep rallies to white supremacy. We were having kind of like what Dr. Whitfield was describing as far as we're having people who weren't even stakeholders in our school. Um, These are people who didn't even live in the neighborhood or have people who attended these schools show up and say these horrific things and even targeting kids. And I recorded them. Um, I recorded these meetings. The videos went they went viral, um, and suddenly I received um, an email that I can take down the flag or it will be taken down for me. I chose option B, and the next day I was placed under investigation. I was sent to teacher jail, it's like a dirty warehouse, for the final three months of the school year. I missed the end of my students' school year. They were seniors. Our education commissioner in May announced that he, um, he ensured I was terminated. And then in late June, I received notice that um, my contract was not being renewed. And so as hard as it is, honestly, you know, to have that happen to me, have it happen to my career, it's, it's really horrifying that so much of it was spurred simply by students being empowered and the system that's supposed to support them literally being the ones who are shutting them down. um, That's the most horrific angle to me.
5: Absolutely. I think that that's clear in terms of looking at your case and the ways in which you were bringing in local officials and interacting with students in ways that did disrupt the kind of standard hierarchies. And so that was pretty unsettling, obviously, to many in your community, because otherwise it's hard to imagine why the administration would operate with such an amazing program. In fact, I recall you saying how you found Funding, there wasn't even a funding issue because you had such overwhelming support in the community for your program, right? Mm -hmm. They turned it down. They turned it down. Um, Well, Brittany, let's, let's turn to you for now. You are in a district leadership role, spearheading a number of initiatives for diversity in the Rockwood district of St. Louis since 2013. You were director of educational equity and diversity, where you facilitated and directed diversity and inclusion efforts while fostering safe spaces for students. Even though you are following the school's curriculum and keeping up with current events, especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, parents became displeased and angry enough to mobilize against you in your team for basically doing what you were hired to do, right? And so what does it mean to be told that the job you're hired to do is all of a sudden considered to be dangerously threatening and problematic, especially in light of the fact that you are the only Black woman in a district leadership position in your community?
1: Um. When I think about my time there, my work was really spent being um, an empathetic and loving educator, really focusing my work around um, Black girls and making sure they felt seen and heard. And knowing that your work is then considered to be threatening is, is mentally disrupting. It stops you from being able to do the things that you were there to do. And then at the same time, making you feel like you did something wrong. And so fighting this narrative in your own head of, I know I'm not doing anything wrong. And yet still having these forces that are working against you to be able to do that work. I'm a social worker by trade. This is a reminder that trauma and racial trauma is very real. And that there's no narrow path on how you heal from it. It's a winding path and it changes. And I'm still experiencing um, the effects of what has happened to me because I just left the district in June. And so looking back on it and deciding to make a decision to choose me was really a decision of not only protecting myself, but protecting the people who love me. I think the thing about these stories is um, I've had the pleasure of sharing the space with Matthew and James before. And now hearing Amy's story is people forget that we are real people, that there are real people in our lives who love us. They're real people that we have to provide for. I talk a lot about like my father and when all this is going on, my father cried. My father's from Baltimore, he's old enough to remember when he couldn't try on clothes in downtown Baltimore. He's old enough to remember when he visited his family in North Carolina and was told that he couldn't walk on the same sidewalk as a white kid walking by. So the idea that I will allow a job to continue to afflict this type of racial trauma on my parents was something that I couldn't do. They didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. And while I had a responsibility to show up and do great work for the kids. I have a great responsibility to myself and to them, because if I don't take care of myself, how can I do this work? And that's really where it left me um, figuring out where I needed to be. I spent a lot of time fighting for that seat at the table only to have to remain scrappy to be able to stay there. And so knowing that I had to continue to battle and fight through, it just got to be too much.
5: Absolutely. I also know that some of your background You analyze, for example, race and school discipline policies, and I'm wondering in terms of that research and that experience and expertise that you've gained, uh, if anything resonates with you or parallels for you uh, across the stories that you've heard uh, from the other educators today.
1: Dr. Wilfield's story always sticks out to me probably the most because when I hear the words insubordinate and and disrespectful, this is the same language that you find a lot in the over-disciplining of Black kids because these are the same type of cultural nuances that are used to describe Black and Brown students over and over again with no clear definition of what it means. When I look at data, when I look at the discipline data, there are certain things that it will categorize in certain ways like fighting and drugs and alcohol and it will all fall under it. But then when we get to disrespectful of speech and conduct, it it rolls out in a different way. It shows various incidents with no pattern. The only pattern that you typically find is the race of the student. And then you have to really look at the fact that what does this mean? That James was being called, as a grown Black man, he's being called disrespectful. um, To see those parallels, like the first time I heard him say that, that was the first parallel that popped into my mind, that we continue to use the same narrative to describe Black people, to describe Black boys, but it's used as a way to discipline them, to stop them to reinforce these stereotypes with no clear um, instruction or idea of what that really means.
5: That's very powerful, Brittany. Thank you for that. And just to give people a sense of Rockwood, Missouri, we've got a little clip.
7: And when I hear people calling us racist, because it, it
5: actually hurts my heart, because I have raised my kids to love people, and to accept people no matter what. And just because I do not want critical race theory taught to my children in school does not mean that I'm a racist, damn it. Yeah. So essentially that's what Brittany was up against. She told us that this is a clip that we have in one of our critical race theory videos for AAPF. And she said, that's my community, right, Brittany?
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, and I, and the thing about it is, I will say that there are parents who are working really hard to ensure that children see reflections of themselves in curriculum, but the truth is, there are a lot of parents who are working hard to do the opposite of that, and their voices have become so much stronger than the other ones, and it's, it's a problem. It's dividing it, it's making it where it's a space where children can't feel safe, So I I say that really, everything really started changing last September and the pinpoint in my brain is um, Ron's Big Mission. Um, It's about the astronaut, Ron McNair. It's a book about him as a child and living in South Carolina and that he went to check out a book at the library and he was told that he couldn't because he was black and the librarian called the police on him and the police came and they said, let this little boy check out this book. So when we were at home, for um, the pandemic. This was part of our district, um, a curriculum online where kids could go and have books read to them online. And we had a parent, we had a concerned parents group that posted that this book was a problem. A parent sent me a screenshot of it, like nine o'clock at night. And I said, I don't know anything about this tomorrow morning. I'll look into this and I'll let you know. So by the time I got up the next morning, it had gone viral and so, clearly someone else had shared it and it went on Twitter and, you know, it felt like a win, at the moment, because we had people in the community rallying that this was a book about an American hero, um, an astronaut, someone who had lost their life in the Challenger. In my mind, it felt like a win at the time. But what I quickly learned was it was just the beginning of the rumblings of what inclusive curriculum was going to do in Rockwood and how there would be people who fought against it.
5: Absolutely. And huge opportunity lost for Rockwood in pushing you out. Uh, Let's go to Lily. Lily, you and the students from the Black Emergency Response Team BERT are lead plaintiffs in this lawsuit challenging HB 1775 in Oklahoma, brought by both ACLU and Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law, as well as other organizations. Uh, Oklahoma's legislation severely restricts public school teachers and students from learning and talking about race and gender in the classroom. Tell us what it's like being a student at that campus at ground zero while trying to advocate for racial justice.
8: Yeah, it's definitely challenging to be a student advocating for racial justice in light of HB 1775 being signed into law. But it is also a challenge I rise to meet OU has a history of Black activists and students rising to the challenge when we have seen legislation that seeks to hinder Black education. We've had George McLaurin and Ada Lois Sipuel Fisher and Henderson-Holson, all great leaders and activists who've come to the University of Oklahoma to make our campus better. It also goes to show with this history reaching from 1960s to now that the work is never done. February 2020, we had a sit-in in the administrative building after two university professors used the N-word during class. We let a sit-in as well as a hunger strike, both of which I participated in. Um, there are a number of demands, but one of them was a mandatory diversity and inclusion course semester long course for all first year students so we created this course or we demanded that the university create this course and had been working with them from the end of the sit-in up until about mid-spring and HB 1775 directly undercut that right when we were in the final stages of getting that together for the next semester. This course is necessary. A lot of people, especially being from Oklahoma, there are a lot of people who don't get the opportunity to challenge their biases and interact with um, diverse peoples on a regular basis. They come into college holding these stereotypes And they're never challenged. As college is an institution of higher education, we're coming to be challenged and to foster critical thinking. This bill directly challenges that. It challenges the integrity of our education, especially me being a College of Arts and Sciences major, anthropology major. That directly challenges what the content of my degree is supposed to be. Classroom discussions are no longer fruitful or as challenging as they once were. Now that faculty is required to censor their language and the content of their courses. Everyone who is hindered by this bill is being done a disservice.
5: Thanks for that, Lily. So you did note a kind of night and day shift after the law went into effect in terms of the kinds of conversations you were able to have.
8: Yes, exactly. The conversations that were once critically analyzing Our history and how legislation sought to uh, hinder black growth suddenly got transformed to barely being talked about and discussed, especially in uh, humanities courses, political science courses.
5: Do you get the sense that any of your professors would be willing to talk about the Tulsa massacre after the uh, passage of the bill?
8: Uh, I do believe a few of my professors will, but it's also their jobs and their livelihood on the line. And I can't blame them if they wouldn't.
5: Thank you, Lily. Leah, tell us about um, how ACLU decided to take on this case and why these laws are such threats.
7: Thank you, Sumi. First, I'd like to just say I'm humbled to be here with these panelists and thank you so much for having me. Um, The ACLU is concerned that these laws authorize unconstitutional censorship. They've been advertised as targeting critical race theory, but we know they are so much more. They are targeting the educational and civic equality of historically marginalized communities. You mentioned a lawsuit that the ACLU filed with the Lawyers Committee and Schulte Roth and Zabel. We filed this lawsuit recently in federal court in Oklahoma on behalf of educators and students facing unprecedented and unconstitutional censorship of discussions around race and gender. We started this fight in Oklahoma for many reasons. One, Oklahoma's history is checkered with attempts to suppress the perspective of black indigenous and other marginalized people from the classrooms. We're aware of Indian boarding schools designed to quote, kill the Indian in him and save the man. Also, the majority of Oklahomans never even heard of the Tulsa race massacre. They were never taught about it, even though it occurred in the state in 1921. So building on the recent social movements and the unrest in 2020, Oklahomans called for more inclusive education practices. But the legislature passed HB 1775 to thwart this progress based on their own partisan and racial interests. The legislature passed a law that copied language directly from then President Trump's executive order, an order that had already been struck down by a court as unconstitutionally vague when they passed the law. It uses sweeping terms to prohibit discussions of race, gender, equity, white supremacy, discrimination, oppression, colorblindness, all of these concepts in Oklahoma's elementary, secondary, and higher education schools. The chilling effect in Oklahoma has been immediate and widespread. Anchor texts by diverse authors were removed from reading lists. Texts like To Kill a Mockingbird, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, and A Raisin in the Sun. Teachers were directed to avoid saying diversity or white privilege. Professors stopped testing on theories related to race and society. University librarians have told us they are afraid to purchase materials related to race and gender. The University of Oklahoma, as Lily just said, stopped requiring students to participate in sexual harassment training and diversity, equity, and inclusion coursework. So we brought this case to restore the rights of
5: Oklahoma's teachers, educators, and students. Thank you so much, Leah, for going over that in terms of the various problems with the law, especially with regards to the fierce restrictions and consequences for people perceived to be in violation. So we're so thankful to the ACLU. Let me turn to Stacey, cause um, you know, you're from Chicago like me and you have many fans and admirers because you are a fierce advocate, not only for your union, uh, for public education, for racial equity. And so we wanna really hear from you uh, to paint us the unvarnished picture of what's going on in this moment, this historical and political context of what we're seeing now and why, if you can tell us like it is. Thank you. Um,
9: first, you know, I just really want to give love and support to the panelists who are absorbing, feeling the trauma of doing the right thing. Talk about cognitive dissonance, right? So I do want to lift you all up and tell you thank you and your contributions, your fight, your struggle and your love for us. I feel it all and you deserve it back many fold. So thank you. You know, I am a black woman who is a history teacher who has school age children um, who are black and all of what I am hearing is really having an impact on me because you're not just hearing it you're also experiencing it. So yes, we're in a blue state. Yes, Chicago is the bastion of like democratic, you know, politics and white supremacy is real everywhere in this world. And what we are learning every generation is how difficult that ideology is to eradicate from the institutions that we depend on. That being said, the union that I belong to a group of educators who saw racial justice as a theme that labor must undergird, support, fund, contend with, both internally and externally, we took over our union. We changed our constitution And we um, explicitly fight for racial, social, and economic justice. And you have to, when everyone you are serving inside of your school communities, the overwhelming majority are melanated people. That being said, what I would say in this moment is that we have to call a thing a thing. You actually get to say white supremacy. In fact, you better say it because they're saying critical race theory, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying that white supremacy must remain intact in this country. And so what does that mean for a labor union? It means that not only do we go through a grievance process, not only do we contest the um, discipline or determination of our members, but we also have to ally ourselves with, be in coalition with organizations and communities that are already leading that fight. I am reminded that Dr. King was the most reviled leader, black man, American at the time of his assassination. This work is never gonna give us the type of love, respect and deference that we deserve and It is also the right thing to do. It is about understanding that we are, quite frankly, the protectors of the public good. We have to call a thing a thing, and then we have to have a good counterbalance. Again, the way that the right has taken critical um, race theory and bastardized it is because they don't see a counterbalance in this world that will fight them tooth and nail on facts and truth. So, that's a charge to labor, not just in blue states, but in red states, all states, to like erect the counterbalance to a very powerful narrative that is funded by the same people who want to do away with workers' rights. You can find the line because all of this is connected. What the Koch brothers are doing is securing white supremacy. And if leadership is unable to say that, then it remains marginal, and they get to use their whistles, their microphones, and their organizing to hurt my sisters on this call and my brothers on this call.
5: Exactly right, and that is so important to make those connections. Thank you so much for that, Stacy. So let's go on to our next uh, round, if we can. So, Leah. I wanna go back to you because Oklahoma was not just one of the first states to institute one of these bans on racial justice education, but we again are connecting the dots to say that it was also a leading state for other repressive actions, proposed laws, um, immunity for drivers who hit protesters, restrictions on protests near the state capitol, new penalties for protests that block traffic, organizations that support unlawful protests, et cetera. So how do we understand this and connect together these campaigns to suppress both the teaching of racial justice and the right to protest?
7: That's a great question, Sumi. These repressive legislative actions are a thinly veiled attempt to silence and erase the voices of black, indigenous, and people of color. Our courageous plaintiffs in the litigation I referenced earlier represent a subset of our community who is being silenced through the censorship of the Oklahoma legislature. You heard from Lily who gave an amazing example of the experience of the Black Emergency Response Team at the University of Oklahoma. Our other plaintiffs are the University of Oklahoma chapter of the American Association of University Professors, the Oklahoma State Conference of the NAACP, the American Indian Movement, Indian Territory, an unnamed 11th grade student and two teachers, Anthony Crawford and Reagan Kalaki. This is a wide group of people who are directly silenced by this um, legislation that was passed. Speaking more broadly, we cannot forget, and we more accurately cannot allow people to erase the context here. The laws offering immunity for violence against protesters and additional penalties for people exercising their constitutional rights to protest stemmed directly from the millions of people that marched in support of racial justice following the killings of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. We see various attempts to eliminate the impact of marginalized communities at the ballot each and every single time we show up. In 2020, as you referenced, it was a shortened period for mail-in ballots. But if you think back to the Obama era, it was to stop same-day voter registration. We can look back every single term and see deliberate attempts to silence the voices of marginalized communities. The laws that you mentioned authorize this deprivation of constitutional rights.
5: And that's why we're in the fight now. Leah, we are so thankful and grateful that you are senior staff attorney leading the racial justice program at ACLU taking up these issues. Thank you so much. Stacy. I wanna go back to you and build on what Leah was just talking about, this broader backlash in the United States, and to think about connecting the dots in another way in terms of the big foundations behind these attacks, not only against critical race theory, but also against vaccines, against masks, et cetera. So how do you connect this to these kind of conservative think tanks and dark money that's behind many of these initiatives.
9: Well, I think we have to say that out loud. You just connected the
5: dots. The right wing think
9: tanks, the legislative campaigns, the legal pushes, they're all from the same group of elite moneyed interests whose interests are undergirded by white supremacy, right, by paternalism, by an economy that privileges the few and marginalizes the many. And so when you see parents everywhere in this country having the same talking points, when you see the signs being very similar across the country, when you see Fox News Channel mentioning something that they couldn't define if their lives depended on it, you know that you are in a campaign The challenge is, do we know that we are in a campaign on the other end of it? And so that's the challenge that I have for labor Um, and and in particular our teachers union. So you see Chicago, we were clear about what we needed our labor union to do. It wasn't about critical race theory in Chicago but it was about Arnie Duncan who became the uh, secretary of education nationally closing schools in black communities and firing black women, right? It was about the marginalization of neighborhood schools on the South side and the West side of Chicago that served predominantly black communities. So this idea that public education has never been a battleground for the type of marginalization and reductionism that we're experiencing in this moment is ridiculous. The challenge is How do we organize under the guise of equity, of justice, of more on many? And how do we put our resources behind it as well? It's not enough to just put a statement and a hashtag, get a week of action. It is enough to say that our organizations are going to explicitly resource, fight, ally, coalesce with others who are determined to eradicate white supremacy, name it and say it. Last thought, quickly, we have to do that with people who look like me, though, people who experience this in a particular way. This fight cannot be led by the same people who tell us to pick our words differently, who tell us to express differently. No, quite the contrary. You got to see black women out there. You got to see brown women out there. You got to see people who are in the struggle, not just as secondary players, but as chief strategists, as chief communicators, um, as chief leaders.
5: Excellent, thank you so much, Stacey. Um, Let me go back to Brittany. Uh, Brittany, you know, the other side has really been having a field day with DEI and trying to caricature the work of DEI advocates and educators like yourself, but can you give us some concrete examples of how DEI work that you were involved with actually made a difference in the lives of your students and um, community?
1: Yeah, before I say anything about that, I just wanna say something about Stacy. Stacey's work is so powerful. She drops all the bars. She says everything that I want to say, and I'm so appreciative of the work that you do as a person who is from Chicago, as a person who attended Chicago Public Schools. Thank you for continuing to show up to do the things that our kids need, so thank you. The work. For me, the work was always about not only creating inclusive curriculum, but creating spaces where kids saw themselves, reflections of themselves in the artwork that we had on the walls, reflections of themselves in the books that they saw in their libraries or the books that we had in classrooms, and then reflections of themselves and the teachers and the staff members who help and serve them every day. And I think that, um, the, the fight for DEI is so much bigger than just what happens in that classroom. It's about the learning community in which the students are able to see themselves because you can't be what you can't see. And then we get into the conversation around the fact that less than 2% of educators in this country are black men. If I never give you a chance to see yourself in anything, then how do you know anything different? And if we are not giving them that opportunity because we are driving Black people, we are driving Black men out of education, then we are doing a disservice to all of us to ensure that the future is better for Black people, for all people. I know that um, we are needed But we are needed in a space where we're going to be supported. And it is impossible to do this work if there is no one who is standing beside you when the moments are rough. I don't need you to support me just when I'm getting an award. I need you to support me when things are hard, when there's a struggle, when people are saying things that are mean, because, you know, irregardless of what people say, words have impact. And when you love and you are an empathetic soul, those words have an impact on you that is far greater than you can really believe until you get in that space and people are saying things that are harmful and that they are hateful. And what I know that these DEI professionals need are people who are going to support them.
5: Thank you so much for that, Brittany. Let me go back to Matt in terms of, you know, you were pretty courageous wanting to teach and intervene in the narratives in your community about white privilege even after you had been reprimanded. Tell us why you did that even though you understood that it could be a hazard
4: to you? Um, Well, you know, I just look at it as just doing my job. You know, the students brought that to my class. And what kind of teacher would I be if I dismissed it? My students deserve the right to have these conversations, to be challenged by these conversations and hear these varying points of view than the dominant white culture that Is in Northeast Tennessee. And, and, you know, this is a contemporary issues class. So we discuss a lot of difficult issues from climate change to Me Too to COVID. And never have I been required to show an opposing viewpoint to anything that we've discussed in class. But whenever it comes to race, you know, they're taking things that I'm teaching as ideological statements. You know, these are facts. These are empirical statements and empirical work that we are doing in the classroom, but people are looking at what I'm doing as indoctrination, as I'm trying to make these grand ideological statements to my students, when that couldn't be further from the truth. I don't have a history of doing that. We evaluate and analyze the claims, and the students use their research methods and investigatory methods to either invalidate or validate claims. And that's all I was trying to do.
5: Thank you so much for that, Matt. You know, Amy, I, I wanna ask you, you were removed pretty suddenly from your classroom without much warning. And so it left a real void in the lives of the students that you were working with in EVAC. What did the administration do to fill that void? Because it was a pretty pivotal time in many of these students' lives. and. Uh, what has happened to many of your students since you were removed from the classroom?
6: Um, honestly, one of the most heartbreaking moments of those three months was about halfway through the three months. I, I ran into a student while I was just out and about, and he just said, "Why aren't you back yet?" We have. He was talking to a military recruiter. He um, other students were needed help with their FAFSA. Other students who were applying for college, all kinds of things that we had planned to do to have them ready for the next step. And it there's just a devoid. There, there was nothing. I've tried to work with a lot of my students over this past summer. And I still I talked to most of my students um, from last year on a pretty regular basis. We're very close. Um, but it's like, you know, a few didn't graduate. Several were targeted because they knew I wasn't there to advocate. It was really painful to watch it happen. Um, It also really the students began being targeted also for their voice. The day after the flag was taken down um, by an administrator, the students tried to stage a protest. They were upset, of course, um, and they wanted their voice to be heard. And when they went to attempt to walk out, they were blocked by staff and told that if they walked out, they will not graduate. Not they will not attend graduation, they will not graduate. Students were hanging up Signs um, that they made that said just very positive affirming statements. Staff went behind them, ripping them down. And ultimately, when I was removed, there was an uproar, and students started a petition that pretty much within a day had 17,000 signatures. Um, students were being very vocal on social media. And what happened, as numerous students and parents told me, is that any students who were posting about how the flag should be up and I shouldn't be removed for standing by the flag, those students were targeted. I'm told to take down their posts. So my removal sent a very chilling message to other teachers and staff members who might have in the past stood by students in these types of instances, but who wants to stand by students at the risk of their career? I know I do. I know that there are educators who do, but I think the effect was extremely chilling, particularly when you throw in literally the head of the state of Florida Department of Education taking a stand.
5: I see you reacting to this, Dr. Whitfield. And I also know um, that you have given a lot of thought in terms of the role of silence in school spaces, in terms of perpetuating a lot of the status quo and the problems that we see. Uh, So I just wanted to ask you first your thoughts about that and then to include what you want people to do in light of the stories that we've heard tonight. And then we'll go around after Dr. Whitfield for everyone to weigh in on that question for 30 seconds.
3: Yeah, for sure. So Amy, as I'm listening to you, I had a large number of students that did the same thing. They protested, they organized, they walked out, they started petitions, all sorts of things. I mean, they were targeted by people online. They were told in school, do not attend this. There were were threats to grades, You know, playing time, leadership positions, all these things. And, I, and I'm going, man, that just resonated with me. So I, I connected with that. And I'm so sorry that your students, our students had to experience that when all they're trying to do is step up and do the right thing. And that's, you know, one of the things that, you know, a lot of times people, they've looked at this uh, for a while and been like, hey, that's just a few people that are unhinged. They're, they're starting some drama. Let's just let them do their thing. But if you don't stand up, speak up, what we're likely to see is what has been unfolding in several school board elections, especially here locally, we'll ha- these people will be taking over uh, our school board elections. And so it's easy, very easy to dismiss these folks because what they're saying is lunacy. We've seen the videos, we've heard the nonsense, but don't underestimate, it's part of a very well, in, 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 well machine. It's organized, they're intentional with it, even though it sounds off the charts. And so we have to do the same thing. We have to get organized. We have to be about speaking truth to power. And essentially if we don't do that, who's the who are the people that are going to be hurt? And that's going to be our students and that's why we all do what we do. So I know why I'm here. You know, at one point people that hired me knew who I was, right? And what what my my purpose was. My purpose has not changed despite everything that's happened. So We've got to see these challenges for what they are. I think we've all called them out, you know, throughout the course of our panel tonight, we have to be willing to speak up, stand up, and and just rally around each other to create meaningful change for our students and our educators that are being under under attack.
5: Thank you, Dr. Whitfield, Matthew.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I just think we
4: need to support our teachers. you know we need to speak out for them. We need to show up to school board meetings when events like this happen and things like this happen. We need to support them financially. We need to support them emotionally because this is daunting. You know, the things that all the panel are are going through are very, very difficult. And so we need emotional support. You know, we need people at home to write letters to the editor and let them know what good education means to them. And that Teachers really do, like we really do love our students and we are really, really trying our best to provide them with the education that they deserve. And so I guess my call to action would just be to support us in in, in these challenging times.
5: Absolutely, Matthew. Thank you, Amy.
6: I would say that we need organizations that are in place to support teachers, to stand up and be very vocal in supporting teachers. We need our teachers union to take a very public and very definitive stance against racism in our schools. I think a lot of advocacy groups can do things like provide trainings to local people to mobilize. And I also think we have to reimagine what it looks like to do this kind of organizing. Like, for example, many times students, at least I can only speak for students at my school, they're for many reasons not going to come to a school board meeting. They didn't. Most of them go to any school board meetings this year. What they did do is they created a revolution online and they mobilized with incredible force and power. We, the people, we have a lot of power, but we have to use strategies that are actually practical for engaging people. Thank you, Amy. Brittany.
1: Um, One of my favorite James Baldwin's quotes is, for these are all our children, we will profit by or pay for whatever they become. And so for me, it's always centering back into the work of how are the children? What are we doing to take care of them? What are we doing to provide for them to ensure that they become these global citizens, citizens who can talk about equity and race and empathy and love and all these things and have real conversations. And so my, my thing that I've been thinking a lot about is really having conversations about the power of school boards and unions and ensuring that our communities understand the importance of voting for in school board elections, being aware, being on the PTOs, um, ensuring that you're supporting your teachers unions. There are a lot of conversations that we need to continue to have to mobilize support around the ground roots efforts, because a lot of times when we think about elections, we think about these national elections. While they're important, we need to be thinking about these local elections and how these local things are impacting what happens in our classroom. Our buildings of schools are just microcosms of society. And so when we see these things happening in school, it's just a reflection of what's happening in society. So how do we disrupt what's happening?
5: Thank you, Brittany. Lily.
8: So we as students, we want an education that challenges us not only to become better people, but better leaders. So we need supporters to be visible and vocal on our social media as well as our events and to continue standing up for what is right when legislation attempts to prevent that. We also need people to listen to what we are advocating for and to be there standing up with us.
7: Thank you, Lily. Leah. Thank you. Um, when we look at these bills, we see First Amendment violations based on the right to receive and disseminate information. We see 14th Amendment violations. All of those are actionable, but we can't file the cases. We can't pursue the change that we would like to pursue unless we hear from you. We have to hear from teachers. We have to hear from students. We have to hear from parents. So we can explain the real impacts and the chilling effects these laws are having on students. I'm reminded of a quote that I read from Maya Angelou that history, despite its retching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, it need not be lived again.
5: This is our moment. Thank you, Leah. And finally, Stacey Davis-Gates. Um, we have to take up space and we have to take over the space that we are
9: taking up. And then finally, we have to organize others to come into the spaces with us. This work is not something that we get to do by ourselves, but we get to do with others. And we have to start breaking down the barriers of the organization The union cannot just be for dues-paying members, but the union has to be for the school communities and every single individual inside of the school community. Redefine it. And this is our story here in Chicago. Firing black teachers, closing black schools, instigated a group of us to take over our union to have a voice. And that is absolutely what we have to encourage all over this country, being in a red state, being in a blue state, is that there are organizations, there are coalitions to build, take up the space, take over the space, redefine the space and make the space equitable and just for those who need it the most.
5: Thank you so much, Stacey. And I wanna take this time to thank all of our panelists tonight. We are humbled and moved by your comments, your actions, your bravery, your commitment, your integrity to your work. This is not goodbye, by no means. We are continuing in our Truth Be Told campaign to continue this work, to resist, to lift up teachers, to support teachers, and to make real all the call to actions that our speakers gave voice to tonight. So all of those of you who are joining us tonight, expect to be hearing from us because we are gonna be reaching out to make sure uh, that we do right by these educators who have given us so much and that we push back with a movement that's based on truth, justice, and love to take us forward, to transform the future for all of our youth.
0: Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was co produced by Ashley Julian with support provided by Destiny Sproul, Rebecca Scheckman, and the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.
3: Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the lawyer was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We gotta
6: attack Scarcella.
3: Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.